We'll be reading verses 7 through 16. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome with sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Medellin. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day at Pentecost. This is the word of God. Pray with me today, church, as we come to consider God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you, Father, because due to the great gulf of difference between our nature and your nature, even without our sin, we would never be able to discover all that is true that you have revealed to us in your word. And certainly because of our sin by which we suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness, we would never know a thing about you had you not revealed yourself to us in word and in power in the power of God that is the gospel that brings about salvation, that crucifies the old man of our flesh, that raises us to newness of life in Jesus Christ, that transforms us by the renewing of our minds. Father, we praise you for your word today. And we ask as we come to it that you would use it, Holy Spirit, illuminate its meaning to us Convict us of its truth. Help us not to simply be hearers of the word, but more and more to become doers of the word whose lives are transformed. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we come to your holy word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we took a little bit of a break, didn't we, for the past couple weeks from our study together in the book of Acts, and we did that in order to reflect together on the great hope of the resurrection, the bodily, physical resurrection specifically of Jesus two weeks ago. We talked about together and read about together and took in Paul's proclamation together in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then last week we focused on the great hope of the bodily, physical resurrection of all of the saints of God in Christ Jesus when He returns, as we meditated together last week on Paul's wonderful words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So this week, as we return now to the book of Acts, we're coming to a very timely passage where Luke records for us a resurrection The resurrection from death of a young man named Eutychus during Paul's time of ministry in that city of Troas on the western coast of Asia Minor. So think back with me to a couple of weeks ago and remember that Paul had spent an extended period of time in the city of Ephesus and then From Ephesus, he had traveled up through Macedonia and all throughout Greece. He spent three months in those areas before returning back through Macedonia along with a group of traveling companions and he intended to eventually make his way back to Jerusalem in time for the festival of Pentecost there because during the time of Pentecost, of course, that was one of the times when people from all over Israel, Jews from all over the empire, really would, 
would make their way, would make pilgrimage once again to Jerusalem in order to come and celebrate Pentecost together in the city. And that would give Paul a wonderful opportunity to be able to preach the gospel and minister the truth of Jesus Christ to people who were gathered in Jerusalem for that celebration. And so that's Paul's plan. He's he's endeavoring to get back to Jerusalem by the time of Pentecost. And so we saw that along this journey home, when they came to the city of Philippi, Paul and Luke stayed in Philippi while the rest of the group they were traveling with went on ahead to wait for them at Troas. And the reason Paul stayed at Philippi, we saw on Palm Sunday, was so that he could be there in that city for the day of Passover and the following days of the celebration of the Feast of of Unleavened Bread. Because again, those were days that presented a wonderful opportunity, a perfect opportunity for Paul to proclaim Jesus as the true Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, and to present and proclaim that Jesus is the true bread of life who has come down from heaven to give life to the world. He's the fulfillment of everything that the Passover and the days of unleavened bread in the Old Testament were shadows and types of. And so, Paul stayed in Philippi in order to proclaim Christ. And so now... Luke tells us, look at verse 6 here of Acts chapter 20. Luke tells us that Paul and Luke have set sail from Philippi. They've left together in order to catch up with the rest of the group in Troas after the conclusion of the Days of Unleavened Bread. And they've made a five-day voyage eastward across the Aegean Sea to that port city of Troas, which is there on the western coast of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. You can... You can find the ruins of that city to the south of Istanbul on the coast of modern-day Turkey. And so Luke tells us, verse 7 now here of Acts chapter 20, that there in Troas, as he and Paul, uses the pronoun we, he's with Paul, he's writing this book, he's a first-hand witness to these events. As Luke and Paul and all of the other guys who have traveled with them, their names are listed up in verses 4 and 5. He says they're all now gathered together along with a group of other Christians and followers, disciples of Jesus from the city of Troas. They're all gathered together on the first day of the week in an upper room where they were breaking bread and where Paul was teaching and preaching the word of God. On the first day of the week. Now that's significant. In modern, western, uh, American parlance, when we say the first day of the week, what, what day are we talking about on our calendar? When we say the first day of the week, we're talking about Monday, right? Because Saturday and Sunday... In our society, in our culture, that, that's the weekend, right? After you did the really important stuff during the week, now you get some time for you. It's the weekend. It's the end of the week where you get to rest and relax and recharge your batteries before the, the beginning of the next week, right? Because in our society, the week is defined by the activity that we hold to be most important in our society, and the activity that we hold to be most important in our society is defined not by the Word of God, but was defined more by Henry Ford. It's work that matters most to us in our society. Productivity matters most to us in our society, not worship, not the service of God. And so work defines our week, and most typically the work week begins on Monday, and for Most people, many people at least, the work week ends on Friday, and so Saturday and Sunday are called the weekend before the next work week begins again on Monday. But to the Jewish mind, things were oriented completely differently than the American mind. And Luke and Paul are both operating, obviously, from that Jewish Old Testament mindset, that background rooted in Scripture that they were raised in. And to the Jewish mind, the last day of the week was the Sabbath day, the day upon which God rested. God did His work for six days and then rested on the seventh day and prescribed in His unchanging moral law, the Ten Commandments, in the fourth of those Ten Commandments, that we pattern our lives the same way. 
that we consider our week to begin on a certain day and to end on that Sabbath day. And so for the Jews, that's how life worked and their week was oriented and their Sabbath day, their final day, their ending day of the week was equivalent to our Saturday. And the first day of the week was the day following the Sabbath, which is equivalent to our Sunday, this day. The Jewish calendar weekly simply labels all of the days except for the Sabbath day, the last day, it simply labels all of the days by number. The first day, the second day in Hebrew, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, and then the Sabbath day. The last day of their week is is their day of rest according to the pattern established by God in creation. That's the Sabbath day. Sabbath is a word that means, Shabbat is a word that means to rest. And so here in Acts chapter 20 in verse 7, Luke records for us that all of these Christians in Troas are gathered together on the first day of the week. That's the day after the Jewish Sabbath. That's the day that we would call Sunday. Now why do we call it Sunday? Well, in our society we call it Sunday because that's the name that the Romans adopted, and they adopted it from the Egyptians who named all of the days of the week after the sun and the moon, Monday and the planets, like Saturn Day, right? That's how they oriented themselves, based on uh, observations and worship, really, of the creation rather than the Creator. But in time... As the gospel spread all throughout the Roman Empire, the day that was called Sunday, the day of the sun, came more and more in time all throughout the Roman Empire to be called something else. It came to be called the Lord's Day as the gospel and the faith of the Christian religion spread all throughout the Roman Empire. They came more and more to call Sunday instead of Sunday, the Lord's Day, because that was the day that the apostles had set aside for the church to worship on in recognition and in honor of the fact that that was the day when Jesus was raised from the grave in triumph over death and unto everlasting life. And even today, in a lot of Western countries and cultures, in most of them in fact, The name of the day isn't Sunday, like we call it in America. In in a lot of Western cultures, even today, the name of the day is the day of the Lord. So in Spain, and in Mexico, and in Latin countries, for example, the day is called Domingo, which comes from the Latin word Dominus, which means Lord. It's the day of the Lord, right? In Italy, it's Dominica. In France, it's Dimanche. All of them mean the Lord's day. But in America, it's Sunday. And it's the last day, not the first day in America. And I, just as an aside, I just think that's indicative of how in our culture we tend to see this day as a day for us. A day... Not for the Lord, first and foremost, but a day where we get to do what we want to do after we worked hard and earned this day to sort of sit in the sun and worship the creation and recharge our batteries at the end of our week before we have to go back to work. That's how we tend to see it, instead of how the apostles saw it, as a day where we're not all about us, first and foremost, but we're all about worshiping our Creator. And it's not the last day of the week, it ought to be the first day of the week. And as the first and most important and primary day of our week, it ought to define the thing that we do that's most important during our week. And that's what we see going on in Acts chapter 20. What mattered most to them on the first day of the week was the service of the Lord's worship and was the Word of God, and was breaking bread in celebration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now on the one hand, 
And in one sense, we don't want to get too caught up in semantics. The word that we use ultimately maybe doesn't really matter. Most of us still refer to this day as Sunday just because of convention. And we don't really realize that that came from a a Roman convention that had to do with Egyptian gods of the sun and so forth. It's okay. It doesn't necessarily dishonor the Lord to use the word Sunday in our society. But on the other hand... What we do on this day matters, doesn't it? How we view this day matters, doesn't it? Because God has prescribed in His Word how human beings are to live our lives and view our days and our weeks in relationship to Him who made us in His image. And I am persuaded that the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments is still a commandment. That as we move from Old Testament to New Testament, we don't go from Ten Commandments to nine. I'm persuaded that the fourth commandment still matters. As a part of God's unchanging moral law, because it emanates from God's unchanging moral character. And that as image-bearing human beings, we're still meant by God to pattern our lives after God's prescription of working for six days and then resting for one, like He did. Because that fourth commandment is not anchored to a particular culture or society in the past, it's anchored to the creation itself. And it's anchored to His own nature as God, and that doesn't change. And so, even though which day I think has changed between old and new now, as in the new covenant, according to the precedent and the pattern of the apostles, they no longer honored the last day of the week, they honored the first day of the week, in recognition of that all-important event of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I believe it's still important that that like the apostles, we recognize this day as being a day unto God, as being a day of rest and a day devoted to His worship, as being something that we would call the Lord's Day. That's important. Not to just look at this day as a day for us to do whatever we want before we have to go back to work, but to see it as a day that is divinely designed as an opportunity and a privilege for us to rest and to start our week out by devoting ourselves to what matters most. So that the first step that we take during the week defines the direction for the rest of the week. And that that direction is to do what pleases God. So gathering together and worshiping the Lord and receiving His Word and communing together with Him as His people and receiving the grace that He gives in special ways and special measure on this day to strengthen our faith and to sustain us and to carry us through the rest of the week. See, starting off on the right foot on the Lord's Day is the most important Thing that we do so that the rest of the week we're on the trajectory of living for the sake of His glory. Doing whatever we're doing out there in a way that pleases Him before it pleases ourselves. Walking by faith all week long and not by sight. Pressing on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We've got to establish the trajectory at the beginning of the week which is this day, which is the Lord's day. So we always emphasize, we always tell our boys that the first step that you take in any given day is the most important one, right? Because it, it, it establishes the direction of the rest of the day. If it's a step that's directed towards self, then it's harder to live for others and live for Christ. If the first thing you do during your day is to play, then it's much harder to start working later. The first step is the most important step, and I think the same thing is true by God's design for the whole week. The first day determines the trajectory of the rest. And that's why I think, and that's why I believe, the apostles established this pattern of, that, that begins in the New Testament and becomes more and more codified as the gospel spreads all around the Roman Empire, uh, of assigning the first day of the week as the Lord's Day. 
and emphasizing on that day especially the gathering together of the people of God in order to attend to the business of His worship first before now going on and delving into the concerns of this world and the rest of the week so that as we do that, as we attend to all of those earthly cares and all of the earthly business that God has providentially given us to to look after, as we do it, we're doing it from the trajectory of a God orientation, walking by faith, living for Christ, seeking in all things to bring glory to God. And that's exactly what we see Paul and Luke and all of the rest of these followers of Jesus here in Acts chapter 20. That's what we see them doing there in Troas. They're gathered together, verse 7 says, and the Greek word for gathered together, by the way, is the Greek word sunago. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 10.25, right? We know that verse. We're commanded to not forsake the gathering together. Sunago. It's, it's a verb form of the same word which, when it's used as a noun, means synagogue. Which was the place where the Jewish people gathered together on the Sabbath, on the last day of the week, on Saturday. Here, Paul and all the disciples in Troas are gathered together. They're sunago on the first day. They're synagoguing together on the first day in order to worship Christ. And increasingly, that's going to become known as the Lord's Day. And we're told they're breaking bread together in the middle of the night, after dinner time. And we're told that they're focused, very centrally focused, as we'll see, on the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Now, breaking bread typically just indicated the sharing of a common meal. But here, I think it means something more because it's in the middle of the night. On the Lord's Day, as disciples of Christ gathered together for worship, even as they shared a common meal together, had lunch together, had dinner together, That meal always included a celebration of what we do at the communion table, a celebration of the Lord's Supper, of the Last Supper that Jesus commanded us to observe until the day that He comes. And so the communion table where they ate bread and drank wine in remembrance of the body and blood of Jesus was always a part of whatever meal the church was sharing together on the Lord's Day. So... You see what these disciples of Christ here in Troas, you see what they're doing. On the Sabbath, on Saturday, Paul had spent the day doing what he always did on the Sabbath, on the last day of the week. That was the day where the Jewish people were gathered in their synagogues to worship God. And Paul would always go to the Jewish synagogues to participate in that Jewish worship service, not because he still observed the Old Testament, but because he wanted to proclaim Christ as the fulfillment of it all. And so that's what he was doing in Troas. He was in the Jewish synagogue evangelizing the Jews there who were gathered for worship so that on the first day, those who believed in Christ could come together on the Lord's Day and and, and really worship according to the New Testament pattern. So now on the first day of the week, we see that Paul has gathered together with a group of Christians in Troas in order to spend the day together, breaking bread together, fellowshipping together, communing together, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and and focusing together on the Word of God. So it's a service of worship that we're seeing here in Acts chapter 20 on the Lord's Day. And what I want us to focus on is how much at the very heart of the worship service on the Lord's Day, the preaching of the Word and the teaching of the Word was central, essential. And the very substance of what they did on the Lord's Day had to do with the Word of God. And so Paul was, Luke says in verse 7, Paul was talking with them. And he uses the word again, dialegomai, dialogue. We've seen that word before in the book of Acts. It means a two-way conversation. 
And then Luke also uses a different word. He uses the word speech there in verse 7, which in, indicates a, what, kind of what I'm doing, a one-way oration that people just listened to, like a sermon. And so Paul's doing both. He's preaching, he's teaching, and he's discussing the Word of God with them, and he's doing it all day. He's listening to them and answering their questions. He's teaching and he's proclaiming. He's being pastoral. He's being a shepherd. He's, he's come to Troas and he's kind of in a hurry. He needs to leave the next day. He wants to get back to Jerusalem by the time of Pentecost. He knows how long that's going to take. He, he says, I got one day with these Christians. <laughs> I'm just going to preach to them and teach them all day long because the sheep of God need food and the word of God is the true food because it is living and it is active and it is life transforming and so the big takeaway from this story here in Acts chapter 20 is how absolutely massively and centrally important the preaching and teaching ministry of the Word of God was for Paul and the church in Acts and, and, and is for the church of Jesus Christ today in spite of the fact that so many churches marginalize it. They de-emphasize teaching. They de-emphasize preaching. They de-emphasize the Word because they're so busy doing other things that they think are more important this is one of those stories in the Bible. And this is one of those places in the book of Acts that most people have heard, right? We know the story of Eutychus, right? This is one of those stories and one of those places where a lot of us pastors tend to get teased from time to time, right? With regard to the length of the sermon. Well, be careful, pastor. You don't want to go on too long because, you know, remember poor old Eutychus, right? And keep preaching like that, pastor, right? The guy says at the door as, you're, as they're leaving and you're shaking their hand. You keep preaching like that and you're liable to kill somebody. <laughs> or I hope you know how to raise the dead because you sure are good at putting people to sleep. That's normally what people think of when they encounter this story here in Acts 20. In fact, there's a, there's a book that was even written in 2013, and the title of the book is Saving Eutychus. And it's a book that gives practical insights in how to make sure that your sermons aren't boring or sleep-inducing or potentially deadly because that became the takeaway from this story. And it's all well and good on the one hand. I think it's important to make sure that we don't present and proclaim all the glories that are revealed in God's Word in a way that's dull in a way that's dry, in a way that's boring, because God's Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Don't present it in a dull way. And it's true, probably I believe, that where some preachers can make an hour seem like 20 minutes, other preachers can make 20 minutes seem like an eternity. And I hope that's not me. But the practical considerations are fine. The innocent ribbing of pastors on occasion regarding Eutychus, that's fine. But, but see, on the other hand, when you read this story in Acts 20, do we really want to assume that Luke is recording this episode, this incident, this little story in the book of Acts, and that his purpose is to warn preachers about being long-winded? or bore? Is he really saying, now here's, here's one of the times when Paul blew it. Now, that's not the, the, that's not the point, right? That's not the takeaway. Do we really want to assume that this incident is included in the divinely Holy Spirit-inspired, God-breathed Word of God, which is profitable for God's people in many, many life-transforming ways, that, that the Holy Spirit included it because it relates to us how Paul failed to read the audience and was such a long-winded, boring preacher that he ended up killing someone. That's not the point at all. The point is, first of all, that two weeks after the Passover, 
where Paul would have been proclaiming the sacrificial death and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ back in Philippi. Here now, two weeks later, he is preaching that same gospel message. Jesus died for your forgiveness and was raised up for your justification and he's given by God's providence an opportunity to put God's resurrection power on display. Talk about a divinely appropriate object lesson right here in Troas by raising Eutychus from the dead. And second of all, the point is, we are shown just how massively important and urgent the message of the gospel and the teaching and the preaching of the word of God is for the apostle Paul right here in this story because it's all he does all day long and all night long until the sun comes up the next morning. If this is all the time I have with you, then this is what you need the most, Paul says. So there in verse 7, Luke says very clearly that Paul was intending to depart the next day. And therefore, he prolonged his speech, his preaching, until midnight. He, see, he didn't just go on and on talking and talking and talking because he's one of those guys who loves to hear himself talk. Loves the sound of his own voice. Thinks, well, I'm kind of a big deal, so obviously everybody just wants to hear what I have to say. He didn't just go on and on preaching because of some delusion of, of grandeur or some personal sense of self-importance. It wasn't about Paul. And it wasn't about his words. It was about God and his word. And if the Apostle Paul was anything, he was a shepherd. And if a shepherd is anything, it's someone who is sacrificially committed to the good of the sheep. Paul was a man who was so consumed with the glory of Christ and with the needs of the sheep of God that routinely, daily, on a regular basis, unceasingly, Paul, and we know this from Scripture, was a man who denied himself, not exalted himself. He endured all kinds of terrible hardship and mistreatment and suffering and self-sacrifice in order to meet the needs of the sheep. And Paul knew, if, if, if he knew anything, Paul knew that what the sheep of God need the most is the Word of God. Because the Word of God isn't just interesting. The Word of God isn't just informational. The Word of God is divinely and supernaturally transformational. The Word of God literally raises people who are dead in their sins and trespasses to newness of life. It performs a qualitative spiritual change in the lives of people such that hearts that are in bondage to sin and committed to self and suppressing the truth and at enmity with God become hearts that love Him and that rejoice in His truth and seek to live every day by faith in that truth. So the Word of God gives newness of life, even as the miraculous raising of Eutychus here was a God-given picture of that resurrection, right there in Troas. And it's sad to me, it's so frustrating to me, that in this age, in our modern age, in our, in our post-modern age, so many churches talk all about wanting to be transformational in their ministries, but they do it while they minimize the word. The one thing and the only thing that can actually produce transformation of mind and heart and life. They sideline it. It's sad to me. It's frustrating to me. They decentralize the word. They de-emphasize the word. I listened to a series of sermons this week. Six sermons that were preached by the pastor of a church that shall remain unnamed. And the word transformational was woven all throughout those sermons. We want to be a transformational church. A church where people can come and have a transformational experience. And each sermon was about 30 minutes long. And of those 30 minutes, about 27 of the minutes were given towards telling fun stories. 
Three minutes were devoted to some scripture that was often twisted and distorted and diluted and then apologized for. I know that was a lot of scripture and I'm really sorry. The Word of God is the only power in this world that transforms lives by the renewing of minds. But churches today that talk about being transformational, they end up marginalizing it, sidelining it, and emphasizing all these worldly strategies and techniques and psychological tricks that are intended to be emotionally stimulating and inspirational and motivational. And then they leave, see, they leave the power of life change in the hands of the person themselves. Now that you feel good, now that you're all emotionally stimulated and motivated, you can do better things with your life. And that's what they reduce Christ to, the gospel to, and the word of God to. The power to change your life, the power of transformation for your life, lies in the hands of the all-powerful Holy Spirit who works through the living and active power of the Word of God to crucify sinners with Jesus, to raise them up to newness of life, to conform them more and more into the image of Christ's glory from one level of glory to the next as they are exposed consistently, regularly to the power of God in the gospel and the living, active Word of God. And so Paul says in Troas, I don't got time for stories. I don't have time for programs. I don't have time for techniques. Let's just preach all day. And everybody said, yes, please. We'll be with you as long as you want. And they stay up with him all night long. Now, one of the details that we can infer from this passage verse 12, for instance, and from various passages all throughout the book of Acts, is that the Apostle Paul was a very deliberate man. He wasn't just sort of bopping around and wherever he landed, he landed. He had plans. Sometimes God redirected those plans. We saw that in Acts chapter 16. He tries to go one way and the Holy Spirit somehow prevents it. And so he ends up all the way over in Macedonia and Philippi because the people there needed to hear the gospel. But That notwithstanding, Paul is a deliberate man. He's a planner. He's careful. He knows how long it takes to get from place to place throughout the empire. He knows how many days voyage it is to get from port to port when he's traveling by boat and how long it typically takes to walk or to ride a horse when he's going from place to place overland. And after he left Ephesus, it was his plan, it was his purpose to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. And he planned this journey very carefully. He'd added it all up and probably padded it with with some time in case something went wrong. There's a storm and so the boat had to leave later or something like that. He purposed to stay in Philippi for a week and take advantage of the opportunity for the gospel that the Passover and the days of unleavened bread afforded. He knew then that it was a five-day journey from Philippi to Troas, and he knew how long it was going to take to get from Troas back to Jerusalem. So see, he knew precisely how much time he had to spend in Troas before he'd have to leave again in order to, to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. He knew he'd only have a few short days. One to evangelize in the synagogue and one to spend on the Lord's Day. And he knew that after spending the Lord's Day with these Christians, he'd have to leave the next morning and get on a boat. This was his one opportunity to be with this young church, this fledgling group of Christians in Troas. So if he's going to do one thing, what's it going to be? It's going to be preaching and teaching the Word of God. He could have spent all day talking to these people about all of the interesting places he'd been and things that had happened along the way. And let me tell you about what was going on in that. Boy, there was a riot in Ephesus and they almost strung me up and they could have spent hours talking about all these stories from Paul's travels. But he doesn't want to talk about Paul. He doesn't want to talk about his experiences. He doesn't want to tell stories. 
He wants to feed the sheep with the Word of God. And He wants to do it not just for an hour, let alone for 20 minutes because, you know, people get hungry and their attention spans are are short. Especially at the end of the week, after a long work week, on Sunday, you got to keep it short and sweet, right? Now Paul says, no, forget all that. This is the Lord's day where the Holy Spirit is with us. And we're just going to unleash the power of the Word for all that it's worth. So intending to depart the next day, he literally spent all night with them in the Word of God. Again, not because he thought of himself as any kind of a big deal, but because he knew that in their lives, their eternal lives, that their lives literally depended on nothing nothing else than the Word of God. And so that's the context then of the story of Eutychus. Late that night on the Lord's Day, this group of Christians in Troas were gathered, Sunago, in an upper room. Verse 10 mentions that it was on the third story. So this is a tall building. They didn't build them more than three stories back then. They're made out of brick. They didn't have rebar to reinforce. Things would fall over if you built them too tall. So typically buildings were one, maybe two stories, and if there was a larger, broader building, it could be taller, and this was one of those. It was probably one of the big tenement buildings that was common throughout the Roman Empire where lots of people, like a big apartment house. Living quarters made up the first couple floors, and then on top was a big open space, like a colonnade where people could gather for weddings, social events, or times like this. So there they were, they're up on the third floor of this big building, gathered together, and Paul was preaching, and Paul was teaching, and Paul was dialoguing with them all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, all about the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures in Jesus Christ. And this went on well past the typical bedtime which wouldn't be long after the sun goes down, 8 or 9 p.m. Now we're, now we're deep into the night. And everybody's riveted. Everybody's still there. Everybody's drinking in the true milk and the pure milk of the Word with Paul. Because again, he's anxious for them to understand as much as they could about all the ways that the Scriptures had spoken of the Messiah, all the ways that Jesus has fulfilled it all, 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 all about the nature of the Gospel, all about the Kingdom of God, right? as we've learned throughout Acts. And so the people, also aware that Paul's going to be leaving in the morning, they're eager to stay all night and to hear all that Paul has to say. I mean, there's no uh, recordings, obviously, in these days, right? No CDs that they could pick up at the sound booth in the back and take home with them and then listen to again and again and try to glean more and more from Paul's message or teachings. There were no websites for the church that you could go and listen to a a set of sermons that Paul had preached. There was no sermon audio where you could go listen to other people preaching. They just had Paul. They just had the Word of God. And they just had him for this one day. And because of the priceless treasure of the Word of God that he preached, they were with him throughout the whole night. They were willing to give up sleep in order to take in as much of God's Word as they could. So verse 8 tells us, Because it was night, it's late, it's dark out, the sun's down, the upper room is big. Maybe it's a room similar in size to this room. And so, if it's pitch black and there's no city lights and there's no electricity... There needed to be many lamps that were lit in order to illuminate the room throughout the night. And the lamps, no electricity, of course, these were very typical first century oil lamps. I actually, when I was in Israel for school, we went on an archaeological dig. This is back in the mid-90s, and I, and I dug one of these little lamps right out of the dirt. And it, it was little, it fit right in the palm of my hand, it was about that big. 
a little bowl with a little stem coming out and you'd fill the bowl with olive oil and put a little wick down in there through the stem and then it would wake up the oil and you'd light that and it would produce a little flame that would burn for a couple of hours. And the one I dug out was pristine. It was perfect. And you could even see the black uh, charring around the spout where the wick would have gone in there. And it was very tempting to dig that and just stick it in my pocket. and take it home, but the archaeologist that was overseeing us saw that, that I had found this, and he got really excited. He let me take pictures of it, but then he confiscated it, because in Israel, the Ministry of Antiquities does not let you take any artifacts out of the country. Uh, I don't know where it is now, but I have a picture of it somewhere. But those little oil lamps, you can imagine, like, like a single candle in your house, they don't put out a lot of light all by themselves. So in a big room like they were gathered in there in Troas, there would have had to be a lot of these lit, see? And then, and then they would have had to be burning deep into the night. And historians tell us that the smoke from those little lamps was, was, was pungent and that if they were lit for a long time, like if you were up late at night working, then in the morning your clothes smelled like the smoke and the fumes of the oil lamps that you had burning late into the night. So you can imagine that the air in this big room there in Troas on the third story is probably thick with the smoke of the mini lamps that are lit, right? And the fumes of those mini lamps. And it was crowded in there too. They needed a big place because there was a lot of people who wanted to gather together and hear Paul speak. Paul was likely sitting maybe on the floor in the middle and everybody's around him. Listening, hanging on his every word, listening to him preach, asking question after question. They're amazed about the Messiah that he's teaching them about and all the wonderful fulfillments and and the nature of the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish and to fulfill. When I'm in a place like that, where it's crowded, the air is stuffy, right? both with lamp smoke and everybody's breath and sweat, my impulse is to find a place kind of off. I don't want to be right in the middle of of that throng. My impulse is to find a place that's a, a little bit off to the side where there's a little more breathing room. I can still hear, but I can also still breathe. And it seems as though that's how this young man named Eutychus felt also. In verse 9... Luke calls Eutychus a neanos in Greek. And down in verse 12, he uses the, the word paida, which means boy. Neanos means a young man, paida means a boy. And so when you put those together, probably what Luke is telling us is that this man, Eutychus, was a young man, probably somewhere between Spencer's age and Justin's age. Somewhere between the age of 13, when manhood began, and the early 20s. That's how old probably Eutychus is. And you're going to love this. The name Eutychus literally means fortunate or lucky. (laughs) This is a little providential bit of irony there that wouldn't be lost on people who were reading Luke's account in Greek. His name meant lucky. So young Eutychus decided he's got to find a place where he can hear Paul teach, but can get some fresh air. So verse 9, he finds a seat in the window. And you can imagine in those days, there were glass panes, but it was very rare for windows to be covered with glass yet in those days, especially in one of these buildings, like a common tenement house where where blue-collar people lived. Ordinarily, windows were just big openings. So the walls of the building were made out of kiln-fired hardened brick that could be stacked up and were were sturdy enough to hold two or three floors, but the the walls had to be thick, a couple feet thick. And then you would just leave a space when you were building the wall, just an opening to the outside for the window. Sometimes they had curtains. Oftentimes, especially if it was an upper room like this, they just left them open. So Eutychus has climbed, it seems, most probably up into the window frame. He's not just sitting under it, he's up in the frame itself. He's sitting there, his legs are stretched out, his back's propped up against the horizontal part. 
as he's listening to Paul proclaim the gospel and teach the word of God long into the night. And we don't know why. So a lot of, a lot of ink gets spilled on, on speculating why he got so sleepy. There was smoke in the air. There were a lot of people. His brain was tired from taking in so much, blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's just late. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Eutychus got sleepy. And he fell into a deep sleep so much that when he started kind of wobbling, it didn't wake him up and he fell right out of that third story window all the way down to the ground below and was, Luke very clearly says in verse 9, taken up dead. And elsewhere in the New Testament we learn that that Luke by trade was a physician, a doctor, and so he would know what it looks like for a person to be unconscious versus what it looks like for a person to be dead. Eutychus wasn't just unconscious. The fall had killed him. And you can imagine everyone's alarm when Eutychus falls out the window. Paul uses that word alarm there in verse 10. They all would have rushed to the window. They all would have rushed downstairs to get to him taking him up in their arms and realized he's, he's gone. The fall killed him. It was a tragedy in any case. And for a young man who hasn't fully attained all of adulthood yet, it was considered an especial tragedy. But verse 10, Paul went downstairs out to the street under the window to where Eutychus' body was and did something that conjures deep and powerful and profound memories from the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 17, God told the prophet Elijah to go to a place called Zarephath, where he would find a widow. And God said, when you find this widow, she'll take you in and she'll feed you. And so... Elijah went to Zarephath and he he sees this widow working outside. And he says, bring me some water. And she says, I'll go get it for you. And he says, while you're at it, bring me a morsel of food. And she says, oh, all I have is a tiny little amount of flour and a tiny little amount of oil. And it's not even enough for me and my son to live on. And we're starving to death. And I was about to make a tiny little cake for me and a tiny little cake for my son as our last meal before we starve to death. I really don't have food to give you. And so Elijah says, as a prophet of God, by a word from the Lord, if you'll bring me a cake and make one for yourself and for your son, you can keep making cakes out of the flour and out of the oil and they'll never run out by God's providence. And so, she does. She goes and makes cakes for them, and the flour doesn't decrease, and the oil doesn't run dry, even as the bread kept being baked. And then in that story, the widow's son got sick. And he became so ill that it says there was no breath left in him. This poor Widow, she's lost her husband. She has no means to support herself. She can't even feed her son. And now, not only has her husband died, her only child has died. And the poor woman in anguish thought that God was mad at her. And that this was why he'd sent Elijah to her, to punish her for some sin that she'd committed by taking the life of her son from her. But Elijah knew that's not God. That's not his heart. And so Elijah took the boy from the poor weeping widow's arms and laid the boy, stretched the boy out on his bed, stretched himself out over the boy and pleaded with God, whose mercies are new every morning, O Lord my God, Yahweh my God, let this child's life come back into him again. And it did by the power of God, through the prophet, hovering over this child as if to say, through me, God, pour life into his life. And the boy was raised. And when the boy was raised and and Elijah brought him back downstairs and 
presented him now alive again to his mother, the woman said, truly now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So God's great mercy in 1 Kings 17, God's great power validated God's prophet and exalted and magnified God's word. And there in Troas, the same exact thing happened that Elijah did in Zarephath. Paul stretched himself out over Eutychus, took him in his own hands in the same kind of way that Elijah had done with the widow's son, as if to indicate that the power of the living and life-giving God would pour out life through Paul's life into this boy's body. And by God's great mercy and by God's great power, Eutychus's life came back into him. And Paul says to everybody who's around weeping because this tragedy has happened, Don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. Once again now, his life is back. And then what did they do? They said, well, that was a long day, and that was an emotional experience, and we better all go to bed now. And probably, Paul, you should stop preaching because, um, you know, we don't want anything like that happening again. Now, then late into the night, after midnight, Paul broke bread with them. This isn't dinner time. This is not anywhere near the normal dinner hour meal. This is, I believe, Paul saying, look, the same power of God that just poured through me to give life back to Eutychus is what I'm talking about Jesus doing by His death on the cross, by His resurrection from the dead. He gives life to those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And so they broke bread together. They took communion together. They celebrated the true bread who gives eternal life to the world. They celebrated Jesus who is the living bread. Who like the the widow's jar of flour back in 1 Kings 17 never runs out. The bread of Christ who himself said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall never hunger again. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And for the rest of that night in Troas, it says Paul continued to converse with them, to teach them, to preach to them, to talk with them, to dialogue with them about the Word of God. And none of them said, I've had enough. So far from being bored, so far from being put off by him after what happened to Eutychus, they stayed up with Paul all night. And they drank in every drop of the teaching that Paul poured out for them because it was life. Because it was the Word of God. Because it wasn't just interesting tales from the travels of the Apostle Paul. It was truth, it was life, it was transformational, it was hope, it was everything. In John chapter 6, we'll wrap up here. In John chapter 6, there came a point in Jesus' ministry. He'd been teaching a lot, preaching about the kingdom a lot. He'd been healing people performing miracles and many signs and wonders. He'd been praying over baskets of bread and a few fish such that they were multiplied and didn't run out even when they were feeding thousands of people, all in anticipation of proclaiming Himself to be the unending bread that gives eternal life to the soul. But see, they didn't want that part of it. They wanted the here and now stuff. They, they, they wanted free lunches literally more and more. And more healings and more miracles and more signs and more wonders. And eventually, when Jesus was trying to show them and teach them how these things that He was doing were pointing to the greater need, the greater reality, the, the greater life, 
the greater bread, the greater blessing, the greater kingdom, they lost interest. All these crowds that had been following after him because they didn't want that. They wanted the earthly stuff that he could do for them. They didn't want him. They wanted the miracles. They wanted the healings. They wanted the food. But they didn't want his word. And so when in John 6, he was proclaiming to them things that they ended up not wanting to hear in the hardness of their hearts, they made it clear that they didn't want him. They didn't want the true bread of life. They didn't want the living word of God. And so they left. They went back home. Well, if you're not going to give us what we want, then we're going to go back home because that's where we have what we want. They turned from the one who gives everlasting life and salvation and they went back to the cares of this world. And that's when Jesus turned to his 12 disciples and he said, is that what you guys want too? Do you want to go away also? And that's when Peter answered, John 6, verse 68, Lord, where would we go? Whom shall we go to? Because you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Beloved, this is who Jesus is. He is the living bread who gives eternal life to your soul and to this world. And his words are the words of eternal life. What else is there in this world that matters more than God's word? And are we the people who will stick with him and his word? No matter what in this world as the most priceless treasure and truest food that exists or are we the ones who say that's interesting and I've got an appetite for it for about 30 to 45 to 55 minutes max on Sundays and the rest of the week I'm back to business. The things of the world matter more to me. Which is it? What is it in this world that matters more than God's Word? God's Word is living. God's Word is active, Hebrews says. God's Word is breathed out by God Himself, Paul says in 2 Timothy. God's Word is divinely profitable for our lives in ways that nothing else in this world can ever possibly be. The gospel in God's word is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1 says. Faith through which we are saved comes through hearing God's word preached. Not any other way, Romans 10 says. God's word and God's word alone transforms us with supernatural power by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12 says. This world is full of darkness. These days are evil. Satan is called the prince of darkness. And darkness means falsehood and lies that are exchanged for the light of God's truth in this world. And this world is dark with those lies. And God's word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Without which you will not make it through this world safely. You will be caught up in the darkness. You will be swallowed up by the lies and the deception without the lamp that God's Word is, Psalm 119 says. God's Word is perfect, Psalm 19 says. It revives the soul. And revive doesn't just mean refresh. It means give life again. God's Word is absolutely trustworthy. It is able to make the simplest person Absolutely wise, Psalm 19 says. God's word is what overcomes depression and discouragement and fear in this world because it rejoices the heart in a way that nothing in this world can do. God's word enlightens the eyes, Psalm 119, or Psalm 19 says. God's word endures forever. It is the epitome of purity and truth and righteousness. What else do you want in this world? What what interests you more in this world? What's a bigger priority? What's more important? God's word is, the psalmist says there in Psalm 19, and he says it as a matter of objective fact and reality that doesn't depend on how we feel about it. God's word 
is far more valuable than gold. More desirable than much of the finest gold. God's word, Psalm 19, verse 10, is far sweeter in its revelation of the beauty of God's holiness and His mercy, His redeeming love, sweeter by far than anything in this world, the sweetest honey or the drippings that come straight off of the freshest honeycomb. Psalm 19, verse 10. Seriously, what else matters to you more in this world than the priceless living, life-giving, life-transforming power and sweetness of God's Word? Would you have been among those who once Jesus started teaching and stopped serving free meals said, I'm not interested and gone home? Or would you be Peter who says, where else am I going to go because you have the words of life? Would you be in bed in Troas? Or would you be in that upper room all night long with Paul because he was proclaiming the word of life? What's more precious to you? What's sweeter to you? Where else can you go? Where else do you go in this world and in this life to find whatever it is that you think your mind and your soul and your life needs? God's Word is life. Read it. Learn it. I already read that. Read it again. I promise you'll learn something else. Meditate on it day and night. Hide it in your heart. Let it empower you to put to death the sinful desires and deeds of your flesh and tear down Satan's strongholds and and take every thought in your mind captive to the obedience of Christ. Whatever else you do in your life, however else you spend your time, wherever else you go to find whatever you think your soul needs, you visit those places and that's just fine. But you abide in God's word, Jesus says, right? Visit all kinds of other things that your mind and your soul enjoys. Basketball game on TV, great. Enjoy. The beach, some kind of recreational activity, a novel, a movie, fine. Visit that place. Abide in God's word. Live, dwell, remain in the word of God. Jesus himself says in John 8 and John 15, and let it dwell in you richly, Paul says. Colossians 3 and verse 16. Because the God-breathed word of God alone contains the words of everlasting life. Nothing's more important. Nothing's more precious. Nothing is sweeter. So before I put anybody to sleep or kill anybody, let's pray and let's sing. Our God and our Father, would you help us to be able to prize and treasure your word as the precious treasure that it is. Holy Spirit, would you tune our souls and convince and convict us of our need to be in your word. And as we are, would you illuminate its truth to us in a way that rejoices our hearts and satisfies our souls and makes it to be what it is more sweet than anything else that we would entertain our minds with or engage our life with in this world. And so, Father, draw us to Your Word. Fill us with Your Word. Make us abide in Your Word and make Your Word dwell in us richly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.